Christ was born across the sea with a beauty in his bosom that transfigures you and me as he died to make men holy let us die to make men free as God is marching on he's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored and let's join him that's the battle hymn of the Republic written in 1856. Originally, though, it was titled On Canaan's Happy Shore. It was like a, a gospel song, but they changed a few lyrics and conscripted it into the military for service in the Civil War, and that makes some sense. Righteous indignation is useful in war. Let's pray. So, Lord God, would you help us understand your indignation? your vengeance, and our own vengeance. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Don't mess with the volcano, my man. Because I go Pompeii on your butt. Oh, golly. Good. <laughs> you keep dreaming. Wanna be... Trifle strident with that bit of crumpet won't be furious. Well, I am a ticking time bomb of fury. right? I'm unpredictable. I'm a loose cannon. I go storming off. Why can't I come storming back? Huh? I mean, it's all in how you play it, right? Or don't play it. Just go back, say you're sorry, and help him save Captain Amazing. You think there's a really angry way I could say I'm sorry? Just because just that's kind of my, you know, I gotta stick with the anger thing just because people like that. That's Mr. Furious in one of my favorite all-time all -time favorite movies, uh, Mystery Men. If you want to understand male psychology, just, just watch Mystery Men. It's all about a group of regular guys that want to be superheroes, and so each of them needs a superpower. Uh, the shoveler is really good at shoveling. The spleen has really potent gas. Invisible Boy is invisible as long as no one is looking, and Mr. Furious gets angry. That's his superpower. What's your superpower? Angry. It, it, it covers his insecurities and protects him from pain and sorrow, but it doesn't seem to be helping anyone, including his would-be girlfriend. I heard Father Richard Rohr say that in his work uh, mentoring men, that he and his group have really discovered that most of what uh, passes as male anger is, is really sorrow. Sadness, and, and I get that. You know, sorrow feels so powerless. 
At least wrath makes you feel, you know, like you're getting something done, like something's getting accomplished. But later in, in the movie, Mr. Furious is counseled by his girlfriend and gets in touch with his feelings and loses his superpower. Then he gets it back. When he begins to be angry on behalf of, of his girlfriend, he's angry over another person's wounds. Now, some call that righteous indignation because you know what? It kind of feels more right, but, it, but it's still his anger, his vengeance. Last week, a 30-year-old staff sergeant in the Kandahar province of Afghanistan witnessed the leg blown off of one of his fellow soldiers. I, I imagine it was someone that he loved. So early last Sunday morning, before we came to church, he got up before dawn and he murdered 16 Afghans. Nine of them children. Single bullet wound to the head. He dragged uh, 11 of them in, into one room and set them all on fire. Of course, Afghan mullahs are swearing vengeance for the vengeance. Leon Panetta is talking vengeance, the death penalty. And it's kind of ironic because, you know, war is like all about vengeance. 12,973 is the documented number of civilian casualties in Afghanistan so far. Somewhere between 60,000, 700,000 civilian casualties in Iraq. I mean, that is far more than the civilian casualties on 9-11, on isn't it? But I know what, what, what you're thinking. Well, something had to be done. Something has to be, justice has to be served. Yeah. That's what Osama bin Laden used to say. Just what Israel says, just what the Palestinians say. And you can trace the vengeance back through Germany, through World War I, through empirical Britain, Crusaders and Turks, Romans and Jews, all fighting over Jerusalem, literally or figuratively, all fighting over Jerusalem, the city of peace. You can trace the vengeance all the way back to a garden and a tree. And even now, I say, speak about these things, some of you feel it. Vengeance. I mean, maybe you're thinking, hey, I know where you're going with, with this preacher boy. It's easy for you to stand up there and tell us to be nice while others fight your battles to make you free. Well, sin and evil just are not nice. It's not okay. It's not all right. Something needs to be done. Justice matters. Recompense matters. Vengeance matters. And, and I want you to hear me say, um, you're right. Vengeance really does matter. And God wants us to know that it matters. You know, the battle hymn of the Republic is mostly scripture. Isaiah 63, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance, the day of vengeance was in my heart. Isaiah's made it clear if you read the book of Isaiah. He's already said it several times. The Lord has an appointed day of vengeance, the Lord's day of vengeance. So don't let anyone tell you that vengeance doesn't matter. And don't let them tell you that vengeance is evil. The Lord has vengeance. You know, in recent years, some have been angry at me because I have said God's mercy is over all he has made, as the psalmist says. That he may have mercy on all, as the apostle Paul says. And make all things new, as Jesus says, from the throne. Well, people get angry at me because they think I'm saying vengeance doesn't matter. Well, few things piss me off more than that. So let me be clear. Vengeance does matter. Vengeance is holy. Vengeance is good because vengeance belongs to God. 
And so, of course, we all want to take vengeance. The problem is that once we take vengeance, we see that we all deserve to receive vengeance. Scripture's clear. The soul that sins shall surely die. And in the garden, we tried to steal life, God's life, from from a tree. We, we stole our life and now must surrender our life. Vengeance requires it. Payback. So anyway, vengeance is holy. It's just not ours to take. Kind of like that tree in the garden was holy. It just wasn't Adam and Eve's to take. Even in all these freaky old, weird, scary Old Testament passages, you know where Israel's committed to going and just like wipe everybody out, kill them all? God makes it clear. The people are devoted to him. For the vengeance is his. And Israel must not make it her own vengeance, for vengeance belongs to the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, 34. Listen close to this verse. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Vengeance is his. And check this out. His vengeance is like a hidden treasure. Isn't that amazing? Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do you remember why Jesus got crucified? Wasn't it because he started saying stuff like this? You you know, actually, uh, Samaritans are your neighbor. (laughs) Romans are, are your neighbor. And so they took vengeance. They took his life on a tree in a garden. James 1.19. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man cannot produce the good. It only exposes the evil. Romans 2.1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. And then that's the way anger seems to work, doesn't it? I mean, I start out angry, Mr. Furious, I get angry at other people. Then when I reflect on it, I start to become angry at myself. And then finally, angry at God, my maker. Do you know why I'm angry at God, my maker? You know why I'm angry at God? I think it's because I'm not God. When I'm angry with my own anger, it exposes a lie, you see, buried deep in my flesh. And this is the lie. I believe that Somebody somewhere owes me something because they've taken something. And that means I think I deserve something, which means I do not believe that everything is grace. And I have been created entirely and completely by grace. My my anger exposes the fact that I don't have faith. That means I don't have trust in grace. My anger, my vengeance exposes the fact that I stole from the tree and now I believe I am the creator. I am the judge. I am God. And so vengeance belongs to me. See, if I I really believed I didn't create myself and thus I didn't own myself, Myself would be impossible to offend. I mean, it's just kind of simple, simple logic, I think. Um, no one can owe you anything if you never had anything. Or if somewhere along the line you surrendered everything like, like a steward. That is, you can't seek vengeance if there's nothing to avenge. 
So seeking vengeance is the revelation of like original sin in me. And if you seek vengeance, you reject the kingdom of grace, right? If you seek vengeance, what are you doing? You're rejecting the kingdom of grace. If, if you refuse to forgive, in other words, you reject the kingdom of heaven. And didn't Jesus basically say as much? You reject the kingdom of heaven and cast yourself into hell. That's why Jonah went to hell, remember? The belly of the whale is called hell. Why did, he go, why did he go there? Why was he, well, he was offended at grace and so swallowed by vengeance. It's why sons of the kingdom weep and gnash their teeth in outer, sons of the kingdom weep and gnash their teeth in outer darkness. Why? Well, I think they're offended at those who come from east and west and sit at table in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's why the early workers uh, cast themselves out of the Lord's vineyard. They're offended at the master's grace over the late workers. Maybe that vengeance, you see, maybe vengeance is hell. Or I, I should say unsatisfied vengeance is hell. For vengeance itself is holy. Vengeance belongs to God. But to be Perpetually angry, perpetually bitter, perpetually resentful, uh, weeping and gnashing your teeth in darkness as you plot revenge, wrath that does not end, vengeance that's never satisfied. That must be hell. You think God is trapped in hell? I mean, if his vengeance is never satisfied, sounds like he is. Or would be. You know, sometimes we're stuck in vengeance because we feel it towards those we love. And it's those that we love that can really hurt us, right? Because they not only can take our things, they can like take our hearts, nail them to a tree, really mess us over. That's why the Civil War was so painful. They were all brothers, like Ishmael and Isaac. That's the Arabs and the Jews. Like Jacob and Esau, that's the Jews and the Edomites. Like Judah and the uh, Samaria, that's uh, the Jews and the Samaritans. Have you ever felt vengeance toward, toward your brother that you love? Or have you ever felt vengeance towards your, your children? Parents, have you? Right? You, you just want to kill them? Why? Because you love them. And thus you're trapped in your own vengeance. Have you ever felt vengeance towards your bride, guys? I mean, you just want to kill her because you love her. And therefore you're trapped in your vengeance. Read it. Isaiah, the whole book is like that. Isaiah 43, this is along about verse one. Uh, uh, God says this, Fear not, Jacob, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Called you by name. You're precious to me. Verse 28, Therefore, I will deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Oh, look, he says in chapter 49, I've engraved you on the palm of my hand. Is God crazy? No, he's just a daddy. He's a husband. You see, Jacob is God's son. Jerusalem is his bride. So it's not just them that need saving. It's God that needs saving. So who will save God? Well, let's take a closer look at Isaiah chapter 63. In chapter 63 of Isaiah, it's like a watchman on the wall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, the bride. It's like a watchman on the wall of Jerusalem sees this strange and mysterious figure, a warrior approaching from the east, and he calls out, who is this who comes from Edom? Now remember, Edom is Esau. Esau the firstborn, from whom Jacob, Israel, stole the blessing. Who is this who comes from Esau in crimsoned garments from Basra, the capital? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, and, and here's the answer, it is I, 
speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Six times already Isaiah has told us that the Lord is your Savior, the only Savior. This is, is, this is the Lord. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. The watchman asks, well, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And the dread warrior answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. The winepress. As if there's only one Wine press. And so the Lord comes from Esau to Jacob talking about a wine press and vengeance. Isaiah has already told us that, that Israel is a vineyard, a vineyard that has not produced the desired fruit. And so God will burn it down to the root, the holy seed, the root of Jesse. And one day the vineyard will, will, quote, fill the whole world with fruit. The fruit of the vine, trampled, turned into wine. To tread a wine press is to crush the grapes and make wine. The dread warrior covered in blood answers the question. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trod them. The, the, the peoples. And Isaiah has, has made it clear that all the peoples, I mean, not just Israel, uh, or including Israel, I should say, all the peoples, including Israel, need, need to be trodden, crushed. And yet all the peoples are the Lord's creation, even his bride, even his children. So if he crushes them, does he not crush himself? Listen to Isaiah 53, just a few chapters before this. Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied about, about a servant, a suffering servant, a, quote, the arm of the Lord, upon whom the Lord has, quote, laid the iniquity of us all, a lamb. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, uh, writes Isaiah. And then, quote, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel for the day of vengeance was in my heart. But, but that's kind of interesting. It's a day of vengeance. Did you notice that? It's not an eternity of vengeance with no end. In fact, the day of vengeance is the end of the vengeance. Listen to the next line. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. A day of vengeance and a, and a year of redemption. Not just any old year, but the Jubilee year, the 49th year, seven times seven, the Sabbath of the Sabbath, God's rest. Day of vengeance, year of redemption. That's Isaiah 63 and Isaiah 61. He says, year of the Lord's favor and day of vengeance. And check this out. Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 uh, when he rereads re re it in the uh, synagogue in in Luke, saying somehow this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. Uh, at least the announcement of that year of Jubilee. And I think they would see the day of vengeance just a few years later. Well, anyway, the dread warrior in Isaiah 63 answers the watchman. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. My own arm. That's the arm that Isaiah has been prophesying about, the suffering servant, the dread warrior. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. Wrath that, that you would like drink, it would make you drunk. I, I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. My own arm brought me salvation, brought me salvation. Somehow, in some way, at the wine press, God saves God. Even as God saves us. Next verse. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. 
and the angel of his presence saved them. Not an angel, the angel of his presence, his presence. It was David that wrote, if I make my bed in hell, you're there, present. You know, whatever you do to my bride, you do to me. Whatever you do to my children, you do to me. Whatever my bride does to my bride, she does to me. If my bride makes her bed in hell, <laughs> she makes my bed in hell. Whatever my children do to my children, they do it to me. If they persecute one another, they persecute me and trap me in vengeance. Well, in all our affliction, he was afflicted. For about 15 years, I prayed uh, for a, a friend of mine, along with my wife, a friend who'd been horrifically, ritually abused. The Lord would free her from bondage by giving her these visions, perhaps hundreds of them. Susan would see them too, visions in which she'd go back to the most hellish of memories, and always he was there, afflicted, as she was afflicted. And whenever she saw him there, she would see grace there, and then they both would be free and leave there. In one of the last visions, she heard weeping and these muffled noises. And she found Jesus bound and gagged in a closet alone, just, just as she had been bound and gagged in a closet alone, or, or she thought alone. And, and as we prayed, the message was clear. Whenever she was ashamed of herself, refusing to forgive herself, rejecting herself, taking vengeance on herself, she took vengeance on him and left him alone in hell. Her hell. Whatever you do to the least of these, including yourself, is done to him. You see, Jesus really is everywhere. Afghans, Iraqis, U.S. staff sergeants going crazy, losing their mind. He suffers in demon-possessed children in African villages. He suffers in untouchables beaten in India. He suffers in prostitutes on East Colfax, despising themselves in shame. He suffers in executives and their cold, hard hearts as they've lost touch with the rest of humanity, as they rule the world in towers in downtown Denver, in New York City, in Los Angeles. He descends into Sheol, into hell, with murderers, adulterers, and liars, just like King David. So in the words of Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news, announcing peace, proclaiming salvation, who say to Jerusalem, your God reigns. You see, when you speak the gospel of the wine press, when you speak the, the gospel, Jesus, Jesus, the word of God, announces grace to the children of God in whom he suffers. Isn't that incredible? And so his own arm brings him salvation through you and the power of the winepress. So what is the winepress? Where is the winepress? Who gets trampled in the, in the winepress? And what exactly is it that's trampled? Revelation 14, John sees the winepress after he watches the harvest of the earth. He sees this reaper seated on a cloud. Not a grim reaper, a pretty happy reaper seated on a cloud like a son of man and he reaps the earth. It's a harvest of grain. That's bread. Then John watches as the vineyard of the earth is reaped. It's a harvest of grapes. That's wine. The harvest of the earth is bread and wine. Ding, 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 ding. Let's read it, 1419. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. That's the, that's the, that's the city of Jerusalem. 
just outside the city. And who treads it? Revelation 19, John sees the dread warrior. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread. Well, actually, the Greek is not will tread. It's does tread. For some reason, the translators changed it, I think, because it confused them. He does tread. And John saw him tread in chapter 14. Uh, he has trodden in Isaiah 63, and yet he does this on one day of vengeance. I mean, one day that, like, intersects all of time, as if he's uh, trodden the winepress from the foundation of the earth. <laughs> Kind of like the lamb that is slayed from the foundation of the earth. Verse 15, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's Jesus. Strong arm of God, suffering servant, slaughtered lamb, word of God, firstborn of all creation, dread warrior, and Prince of Peace. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. See what that means? Only he can be Mr. Furious. Only him. Only he, the word of God, creator of all, owner of all, has the right to vengeance. Only he is good. He is the good. And so he tramples the winepress alone. And where does he trample it? Well, outside the walls of Jerusalem. That is his, his bride. Outside the walls where he is crucified. And when does he trample it? Well, speaking of his crucifixion, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. And, and it was then the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was then he who knew no sin became sin. It was then he died for the sins of the world. And it was then that he cried, Father, forgive them, and it is finished. It was then. Once and for all. And what does he trample? Well, this is the weird thing. It's called the harvest of the earth. I mean, it's grapes. And grapes are fruit. I mean, a guy who owns a vineyard likes the fruit, right? That's kind of the point. Not, and not just any fruit. I mean, they're grapes of Israel. And Israel, remember, is his vineyard. At last he has fruit, and fruit's not bad. It's good. Well, well maybe it's the fruit that... John the Baptist uh, talked about to the Pharisees. He said, bear the fruit that befits repentance. And maybe it's a humble and a contrite spirit, as Isaiah puts it. I think it's the confession of sin. You know, sins are bad, right? You know that? <laughs> Good. <sighs> sins, sins are bad, but confess sins are good. Kind of like dirt and manure is bad. But the fruit that the vine turns it into, well, that's good. I think the grapes of wrath are sins confessed to God from all over this earth and throughout all of time, sins which Christ bears in his body of flesh on one particular day as he is crushed by the vengeance of God. It happens at the winepress, which is the tree on which Christ is crucified alone outside the city walls where all Jerusalem, his bride, can watch. And the wine press transforms grapes into wine. It transforms our sins into the mercy of God, the blood of Christ flowing from the cross of Christ, the judgment of God, vengeance of God, mercy of God, 
the blood. Revelation 14, 2, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's the size of the promised land. So do you get the picture? In that land, all the war horses, because that's what horses were for in those days, they were for war, all the war horses are stopped in their tracks and literally begin to swim in an ocean of blood. That is wine. And wine that is blood. It's an ocean of grace. John then sees seven angels with seven bowls of wrath, seven bowls of blood, which he then, they pour out on the earth. And John says, with these, the wrath of God is finished. And Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. And yet we hardly ever, hardly ever like it's finished. We all act like vengeance is not finished. That's what we do every time we refuse to forgive. And maybe that's why we always seem to portray the second coming of Christ as the second coming of Mr. Furious! Still mad! Maybe that's why we love the unbiblical idea that wrath Never ends because we're addicted to wrath, addicted to, to vengeance, because we think it belongs to us, because we actually believe that we're God, because we've already got one foot in hell. Hell is unsatisfied vengeance. It's our vengeance. Hell is the place we hide from the cross, the place we hide from the mercy of God, and the place we hide the illusion that we are God, the place we hide our sin, our original sin, our vengeance. Hell is the place where we refuse, we refuse to forgive because we do not believe we are forgiven. So, do you see why mercy burns hell? Mercy is God's vengeance, and it destroys my vengeance. My vengeance is my hell. Refuse to forgive and be forgiven is to cast yourself into hell. Where you hide from the mercy of God, which is the vengeance of God, the very consuming fire that is God. Paul writes in Romans, Beloved, beloved, never, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals, literally fiery coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our vengeance is evil. God's vengeance is good. And you know what? I do think that we're supposed to be angry at evil. But evil is not a person. Evil is a lie and it's destroyed by truth. God's vengeance is truth, which is mercy. So when you forgive, God takes vengeance on evil. When you forgive, God takes vengeance on evil. When you lay down your vengeance, you bleed God's vengeance and join Jesus. In the wine press. Because isn't that what he's doing? When you lay down your vengeance, you bleed God's vengeance. The blood of Christ, the grace of God, the consuming fire that is God. I mean, through some crazy experiences and visions of folks that, that I've prayed with, uh, I've seen that this is actually true. When, when your body is broken, but you bleed grace... You bleed fire and literally burn the hell out of people that God loves. 
literally burn Satan. You are body broken and bloodshed, the harvest of the earth, the very body of Christ. Would you forgive? But dang, it's hard to forgive. For several years now, I've had a real battle with anger, I think. Four, four years ago, I lost what I spent most of my life working to build. And people took what my heart thought was mine. I've been angry at myself. Angry for myself. Angry on behalf of others that I love. Been angry at others, angry at, at myself, and, and ultimately angry with God. I mean, God wants to even show me I went into the ministry because I was angry. I, I couldn't, I still cannot sort out all the sorrow and anger. But, but I tell you, when it was worst, it, it, it really felt like hell. And there was only one place that I could find relief. And that was at the wine press. I wanted blood. And I got blood. Christ's blood. I wanted vengeance. And I got vengeance. God's vengeance. At the wine press, I, I would give people to Jesus. And I would give myself to Jesus. Because I couldn't just sort it out. I, I, and I was angry at myself. I'd give myself to Jesus. And sometimes I'd even picture myself, boom, boom, laid down on top of the cross with him, where I would die with him and then rise with him. In other words, at the wine press, I could forgive. For at the wine press, I could see the vengeance of God. So at the wine press, I could surrender my vengeance to his vengeance. I could surrender my sin. I can't make it right, but God is making it right. I can't do anything, but God is doing everything. So I could surrender my vengeance and trust God's vengeance and rest. Jubilee. God's rest. See, God takes my grapes of wrath and turns them into his wine, mercy. And you can get drunk on mercy. In fact, I expect to spend eternity just hammered with the stuff. I mean, that wine will be my blood. Talk about a high blood alcohol content, right? But it won't be wine, it will be mercy. And one last thing about the wine press. Something which that culture knew and we don't know. The wine press was a place of incredible freedom and joy. It was a party. It was actually a furious party, and in that day, no one trampled the wine press alone. But Jesus trampled the wine press alone, crucified alone, alone with my sin in my hell, with your sin in your hell. But you see, when you confess your sin, when you forgive and are forgiven, you meet him at the wine press. And he is no longer alone. Jesus meets his bride at the wine press. <laughs> took the bread and he broke it saying this is my body given to you take and eat do this in remembrance of me and in the same way after supper and having given thanks he took the cup and he said this cup is the covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins drink of it all of you and do it in remembrance of me 
body broken, blood shed, the tree. This is the wine press, and you're his bride. So let's pray. Would you just pray with me? Now, my guess is that if you're a person living in this world, you're hanging on to grapes of wrath. Are you angry? Are you angry at, at somebody else? Would you bring him to the wine press? Now, some of you have been really hurt by some of these people. Maybe raped. Betrayed. And this is the problem. You, you think to yourself, you think, um, oh gosh, but something needs to happen. Well, look, something does happen. Surrender them to the wine press. Entrust your vengeance to God's vengeance. He knows how to judge. He knows what to do. And his vengeance is good. Well, maybe you're not angry with somebody else. I mean, maybe you're angry with yourself. I mean, there's all kinds of ways we take vengeance on ourselves, isn't there? Sometimes it's slowly drinking ourselves to death, condemning ourselves, hating ourselves. I mean, sometimes we even try to do it quickly. Sometimes people try to kill themselves. But see, here's the problem. You can't kill yourself with yourself. It's just more self. But Jesus can kill you. I mean, he can help you die to yourself. And be free of yourself. Your prison of anger and vengeance and resentment. Oh, just surrender yourself to the wine press. Maybe you're angry at God. Are you angry at God? Oh, well, just stop for a minute. Just stop and look. you see it? Whatever he does to the least of these, he does to himself. He's good. And so drop that, that vengeance into the wine vat. Just take all your anger, all those grapes of wrath, and just say, Lord God, I forgive. I forgive others, I forgive myself, I even forgive you, whatever that means. I surrender all my vengeance to your vengeance. And now listen, he has something to say to you, and this is it. It is finished. Let's dance. Have some wine. So in Jesus' name, may you believe the gospel and live. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. They're both the mercy of God. So Lord Jesus, we thank you, dread warrior, that you have taken your terrible swift sword and you've cut us. You've cut the grapes of wrath 
from this vine and place them in your winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and there you trample them. There you take our anger and our bitterness and our sin and you transform it into your mercy and you hand it back to us saying, drink deeply, O sweet one. Drink deeply, O lover, and dance. Lord God, may we drink deeply of your river For your river does not stop. Your river flows from the throne, which is your cross, and it fills the land. It fills the face of the earth to the depths of a horse's bridle. Until those war horses and tanks and militaries begin to swim in a river, in in an ocean of blood that is turned to wine that is your mercy. And the river doesn't stop until this whole earth, it says, is filled with your glory. In fact, Isaiah saw it at the start of Isaiah. The whole earth filled with your glory and your glory is your love. It's a river of love. And so it never stops. For you are eternal and it is our home. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to battle for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, before you go, let me say, if you understood this message, and as you begin to reflect on it this week, and I don't, I don't think we can ever totally understand that. We just begin to get pictures of it. But, but as you reflect on that, you'll probably begin to battle a fear a voice that comes from your flesh. And it says to you, are you crazy? (laughs) Our vengeance is what protects us. Our vengeance is our savior. Our vengeance saves us. I mean, if it's not for a strong military, um, we would be crushed. If it's not for a police force and laws that people obey and then people have to pray for, we'll be injured. I mean, if it's, if it's not for retaliation, people will take advantage of you. They will reject you. They will abuse you. Your body will be broken. Your blood will be shed. You will, I mean, gosh, you might just get crucified. Yeah. Like I was saying, our vengeance is not what saves us. Our vengeance is what damns us. It's God's vengeance which saves us. Check this out. You don't need to be afraid of death because you died this morning. You came to the wine press. And you no longer need to fear the second death. It's finished. So in Jesus' name, you are free. Amen? Hey there. I hope the message that you just heard or viewed helped you to believe a little more that God is better than you thought, the love of Jesus is deeper than you know, and the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. If that's so, I'd love it if you would consider two things. Number one, ask yourself if there's someone that you know that might benefit from this message and then uh, forward this link on to them. There are several ways that you can do that by visiting our website at thesanctuarydowntown.org. Secondly, I'd love it if you'd uh, take just a moment and uh, ask the Lord